um, helping us uh, focus in on Jesus this time of year. Um, I just want to take a minute and pray because today has just been a whirlwind of stress and uh, mess-ups and technology problems, and so I just want to take a minute and, and pray and help us to focus in on God. Dear Jesus, thank you for this day, and thank you for your many blessings. Um, we just thank you that we can gather here to, to, together today, and Jesus, I pray that you would be our main focus right now. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to, to forget about all of the things going on, all the things that have happened this week, and all the things we have to do this coming week, Jesus, and I pray that you would help us to forget those things and just focus in on you in this time. Dear Jesus, just be with me today as I speak. I pray that you would just speak through me and that um, that you would be with my mouth and, and that the words that come from my mouth would not be mine but yours. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so I hope everybody had a really happy Thanksgiving. I know I ate way too much mashed potatoes and gravy um, and... I've been in a food coma for probably about three days, so, <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure some of you can relate to that, but now that Thanksgiving's over, I guess we can officially say that it is Christmas time, even though I guess the Hallmark has been showing Christmas movies for over a month now, so uh, I guess it just always feels like this time of year just gets here sooner and sooner every year. I mean, the stores have, have been advertising for weeks. Kids are already lining up to see Santa at the mall. Christmas music is playing on the radio. So yes, it's time. The Advent season is upon us. We can put away our turkey and pumpkin decorations and break out our Christmas trees and our nativity sets. Some of you may have already done that. You can see that we already have here. Uh, we set up our decorations last week, and we had an awesome team of people that came together and made this place look great. It looks so warm and cozy and festive, and, and uh, Paula and I were talking earlier this week about how we have the perfect place right up here on the platform for you all to take family pictures after the service. So feel free to do that after the service, but, but you know, that's one of the best things about Christmas. Not taking pictures, but family. You know, this season is full of times where we get to see people that we don't get to see very often. We gather together with our families and our friends, and we make memories that we'll cherish for years to come. And while we look forward to those gatherings, they often take a lot of preparation. This season is just so chaotic sometimes. You know, everyone's running around, trying to get things ready. And I think that most of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time, the moms are the ones who get the worst of it. Now, I know that you dads out there help too. So I know that you help, and it's, it's not just the moms, but I just feel like sometimes the moms are just so busy this time of year. They have so much to get ready. You know, they do a lot of the shopping, the cleaning, the, the decorating, the wrapping the cooking. You know, our moms do so much to make sure that our families have a nice Christmas. Because like I said, family is such an important part of the Advent season. And this time of year, we always take some time to remember one very important family from the Bible, Jesus's family. 
So over the next few weeks, we're going to be doing a sermon series that we're calling Family Christmas. And each week, we're going to be talking about different members of Jesus' family, and we're going to be hanging a stocking for each family member at this beautiful fireplace up here. But we're going to be talking about how each of these different members of Jesus' family made an impact on the world forever. So when we want to know about Jesus' family, we usually start with Matthew chapter 1. So if you have a Bible with you, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And uh, I'm not going to be sticking in this chapter the whole time, but I'm going to be jumping around a lot of different places. But, so just bear with me a little bit. But some of you may be opening your Bible and noticing that this chapter is the genealogy. <laughs> so I don't want you to worry. I'm not going to go through every single person in that genealogy. <laughs> but we are going to talk about just a few people on this list. Um, but first, I just want to make a few observations here. Now, at first glance, this looks like a normal genealogy, right? But it's anything but normal. For one thing, we know that this is the family tree of the king of kings. It traces his line all the way back to Abraham. We can see that Jesus comes from the line of King David, which was foretold in the Old Testament. We also see that the genealogy is divided up into three equal parts of 14 generations each. 14 from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the exile to Jesus. And it all looks very neat and tidy, like everything's in its place, it's evenly divided. And I think that in this passage, Matthew is making a statement here. He's making a statement that there was nothing random about this family tree. Everything in it was by God's design. He had this whole family story planned out a long time ago. However, we do notice a little bit of a contradiction here. At first glance, we do think that this genealogy looks very neat and tidy. But there are a few interruptions in this family tree. Now, at that time, genealogies were typically patriarchal. They were made up of a list of only fathers. But Matthew made a very conscious decision to insert the names of five women, which was completely unheard of at that time. And the five women that he included were not the kind of people that a king would want in their family. Their stories, they're messy, they're scandalous. But without these five women, these five mothers, Jesus would have never been born. So today, we're going to talk about these five mothers and what they mean to us in the story of Jesus. So the first mother that we read about is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Tamar's whole story can be found in Genesis chapter 38. Now this story seems really random. It's, it's stuck right in the middle of the story of Joseph in Egypt. But like I said before, this story is anything but random. It starts off with Joseph's brother, Judah, who is staying with a friend in the land of Canaan. 
He got married to a Canaanite woman, and he had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Now Tamar was the wife of Judah's son, Ur, and Tamar had it pretty rough. The Bible tells us that, that Ur was evil. He was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And, it, and the Bible tells us that the Lord put him to death. And then, as it was customary, Ur's brother Onan was supposed to step in and have kids with his brother's wife to carry on his brother's legacy. But Onan wasn't really a great guy either. He used Tamar sexually, but he made sure that she didn't get pregnant. He didn't want to have sons for his brother because they wouldn't actually be his sons. Well, God thought that this was despicable, and he put Onan to death as well. So here's Tamar, a childless widow, one of the most shameful positions that a woman could be in at that time. She didn't have an inheritance to, to take care of her after her husband was gone, and she had no sons to take care of her either. But Judah did have one other son. He just wasn't old enough to be married yet. So Judah told Tamar to go home to her father's house and wait until Shelah was old enough to marry. But Judah had no real intention of marrying Tamar to his third son because he was afraid that he would die as well. Judah was blaming Tamar for the deaths of his sons even though it was their own actions that caused their deaths. And Tamar was just caught in the middle with no options other than to wait for Shayla to grow up. But once Shayla had grown up, she realized that Judah had no intention of marrying her to Shayla. She had been waiting for who knows how long, and now it was looking like she would remain a childless widow forever. So Tamar decided to take matters into her own hands. We read about it in Genesis chapter 38, verses 13 through 19. It says, When Tamar was told that her father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. So three months later, someone tells Judah that Tamar is pregnant that she's guilty of prostitution, and he sends for her to have her burned to death. But she still has his seal and staff, and when she shows them to him, he realized what he had done. In verse 26, he says, She is more righteous than I, 
since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shayla. Now, Tamar's actions don't necessarily seem righteous to us. In fact, this whole story seems kind of icky. But Tamar's actions are crucial to the story of Jesus. She didn't sit around and wait to die with no husbands or sons. She took action and had two sons, one of which carried on the story and brought us one generation closer to Jesus. Now in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, we read about two more mothers. The verse says, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Both of these mothers played crucial parts in the story of Jesus as well. First, we have Rahab. Her story is found in Joshua chapters 2 and 6. Now, Rahab was a prostitute who lived in the city of Jericho. In this story, Joshua sends two spies to go into Jericho and find out information that might help them take over the city. And somehow, they end up at Rahab's house. Now, we don't know if they were there just to find out information or for other less noble reasons, but whatever the reason, they were there. But somehow, the king of Jericho finds out about them. He sends some messengers to Rahab and orders that she send the spies out. Now, Rahab could have easily complied with these messengers because you really, really don't want to mess with a king. But she didn't. She hid the spies and sent the messengers off on a wild goose chase. When they were gone, she ran up to where she had hidden the spies to talk to them. We read about it in Joshua 2, verses 8 through 13. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof to say to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Rahab shows tremendous courage in this story by helping these two spies. She can see that the God of these spies is real and that he will for sure give her city over to his people. So she puts her faith in their God and he rewards her for that. The spies tell her that she and her family will be spared as long as she brings her whole family into her house and ties a scarlet cord in the window. And that's exactly what she does. 
In Joshua 6.25, it says, But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Rahab's courage helped the Israelites take over Jericho. She knew that God was going to give her city to them, so instead of waiting to die, she helped the spies, saved her whole family, and eventually became the mother of Boaz. Which brings us to the story of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, we read, we first read, about a woman named Naomi. She was living in the land of Moab, and she and her husband had two sons, one of which was married to Ruth. When Naomi's husband dies, and her two sons die as well, she's left with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. They're in a hopeless situation because there are no other sons for the girls to marry to carry on the family name, as was tradition in that time. And Naomi is too old to have more sons anyway. And even if she wasn't, she didn't have a husband anymore to have children with. So she tells her daughters-in-law to go back to their families so that they might be able to find new husbands. But Ruth stays with her mother-in-law, even though it seems she has no hope to remarry. But things are not always as they seem. Naomi and Ruth travel to Bethlehem, and we find out that there is a next of kin that Ruth can marry, and his name is Boaz. So late one evening, at the advice of Naomi, Ruth goes down to the threshing floor and lies down at the feet of Boaz while he's sleeping. In Ruth 3, verses 6 through 9, it says, So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and he was in a contented mood, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came stealthily and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. Boaz was amazed by Ruth's loyalty, both to her mother-in-law and to him. So he tells her that there's one other closer relative that could marry her. But if things don't work out with him, then Boaz would gladly be her guardian redeemer, as some translations call him. In the end, it is Boaz who ends up marrying Ruth, and they have a son named Obed, who is the grandfather of King David. Ruth could have remained a childless widow forever, but she chose to take action in this situation and basically proposed to Boaz. Her actions helped carry on the family line when it could have died with her and Naomi. But the line does continue, and we see another mother listed in this genealogy. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, we read, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. We read about this mother in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 
Her name was Bathsheba. While her husband was at war, King David was on the roof of, of his palace and he saw her bathing. So he sent for her, slept with her, and then sent her back home. But she became pregnant. So David ended up killing her husband and taking her as his wife. They lost their first son because of David's sin. To me, Bathsheba's story is probably one of the saddest out of all these women that I've talked about so far. Because she's known only by what happened to her, not by who she was. In this story, we see her name only once. And then, she's referred to as the woman, or Uriah's wife. She's left to wait, or to wait around, labeled by the shame of the situation she was in. She mourns greatly for, for, her, for her first husband and for her son. But then she has a second son, Solomon. And Solomon was destined to be king. But when David was older, um, at the end of his life, we read in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 1 that one of David's other sons, Adonijah, has declared that he would be king. So the prophet Nathan sends Bathsheba to speak with King David to make sure that her son, Solomon, was the one who took the throne. She made David aware of this situation with Adonijah, and David declared that Solomon was the rightful heir to the throne. Because of Bathsheba's boldness in approaching the king, her son was made king. Now, each of these four women were stuck in some uncomfortable, hurtful situations. And each of them would have been considered unworthy of being mothers in the family of the Messiah. They each had many labels that might have deterred people from even associating with them. Tamar was a Canaanite widow who disguised herself as a prostitute. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. Ruth was also a widow and a Moabite. She came from a people who were considered impure in the eyes of the Israelites. And Bathsheba, she was an adulteress, guilty by association with King David's sin. But to God, they were much more than that. They were bold, fearless women who took action in times of uncertainty. They didn't sit around and wait for things to happen to them. They went out and made them happen. And God used them in incredible ways because of their boldness. But there's one other woman listed in the genealogy, one whose story we know very well, and her name was Mary. We read her story in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. 
Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who, has, who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to, be, word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Mary said yes to God's will. She was obedient and willing to be used by him. Like the other women in this genealogy, she was probably one of the least expected people that could have mothered the Son of God. When we read stories like this, we're reminded that God can use anyone to do his work. All throughout the Bible, he uses unlikely people in unconventional, doing, to do unconventional things at the most unexpected times. And these stories remind us that God is still doing the same thing today in our world because God has even more planned for us. He sent Jesus to us once so that we could have salvation from our sins. But that isn't the end of the story. God promised that Jesus would come to us again and that he would restore humanity to what God had always intended it to be. The season of Advent is a time of anticipation, not just for Christmas, but for Christ to come again. But God doesn't want us to just sit back and wait for that day. He wants us to take action. The women in these stories, they daringly took action for the sake of their families. And God wants us to do the same thing. Jesus says it best in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. God has given all of us a job, not just the mothers and not just for our own families, but he's given us a job to grow God's family here on earth. We can't just sit around and wait for Jesus to come. Our job is to make sure that as many people as possible have heard the gospel and believed. So today, as the praise team prepares to lead us in a song about being ready for Christ's return, I want to encourage you to think about the people you come in contact with on a weekly basis. 
Ask God to place someone on your heart who needs Jesus in their life. And then ask God for an opportunity to share the love of Jesus with that person. Ask him for the courage to share the gospel. We may be in a season of waiting right now, but it's also a season of anticipation and preparation. But preparation takes action. So let's all worship together and pray for the courage to take that action, whatever it may be.